Welcome to Blueprint for Wealth. I'm Wayne Zell, your host of this fast-paced video cast that features special guests that hopefully will help you realize your special dreams, personal dreams of wealth and freedom. And with me today is one of the most high-energy guys I know, Ryan Stuman. Ryan, welcome to the podcast today. What's going on, Wayne? Thanks for having me on here. Ryan, you know, your your wisdom in in sales and in leadership and in executive training really is born out of a a lifelong odyssey that you learned lessons at different points in your life from zero to 10. You said you lost your dad, you lost family, moms, boyfriends disappeared. What's the lesson that you learned in that early stage of your life? By the time I was 10 years old, my family had middle-class money, then lost it all. My grandma wound up in prison. My parents got divorced. My dad split, never seen the guy again for like 20 years. So I learned that you couldn't really rely on anybody, that, that nothing was permanent kind of a situation, you know? And it's funny because you don't realize, they, they tell you in, in psychology books and things like that, that until you're zero to seven years old, you're very impressionable. And at seven years old, you start to, and it's just the beginning. It's not like there's a hard cutoff, but it, at seven years old and eight years old, you start to project, process like abject thoughts, meaning everything your parents have been telling you it, from zero to seven, you just took it as if it was the gospel, right? And after seven, you start going, wait, well, that's not what they do. And that's not how it works for these. So, you know, you're, you're so impressionable by that time that in those zero to seven years, it's almost impossible to break some of those habits and some of those processes that you've downloaded that you've got from your parents. So I say that because, you know, I watched as a young man, family have a little bit, lose it, and then just fall apart. And, and, and then, you know, my grandfather never got his stuff back together. Neither did my parents. And I watched them think that I watched them literally say, Hey man, this success stuff just wasn't for our family. We tried it and it didn't work well. And, and so, man, that was the thought process I had in my life as a young man, as a teenager, Hey, this success thing's not for my family. So, you know, uh, it's, it's very, very temporary if, it, if we're going to have any at all. And funny, when I was 25, I made my first million dollars, almost a million dollars in a year. And by the time I was 27, yeah, I was 25 when I made my first million bucks. By the time I was 27, I was in federal prison. So I had followed that same pattern I'd seen as a kid uh, unconsciously and definitely not on purpose. You know, one of the things you said in, uh, in, in an interview I listened to was that between the ages of 10 and 20, you were hanging around with a lot of bad characters and that got you into some, some trouble. Um, who you hang around with is who you become is what you said. Can you give me a little bit more on that? Man, that has been a proven fact in my life. Uh, between the ages of 10 and 20 hung around, drug dealers, drug users, just bad people in general. And, and, and I won't say necessarily bad people, just not good quality, rewarding, functioning citizens, right? It didn't necessarily mean they were hurting anybody or whatever, but they weren't doing stuff that was moving the productivity needle in America, right? And some of them were doing bad stuff. And so I, you become who you hang with. Jim Rohn said, you become the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. And if I look back at my life at that time, four out of those five people had been to prison. You know, I'd always hung out with, even when I was 12, 13 years old, I was always hanging out with 20 year olds and stuff. I've always considered myself and always saw myself as an older person. But during those years, my teenage years, I ended up getting in trouble, dropping out of school, going to, going to jail. And so did all my friends, right? We all were in this stuff together. 
And I look back now and I'm like, man, that's what my friends were doing. And that's what I was doing alongside of them, right? Might even have been yeah. leading them down that path. And now yeah. I look at what I'm capable of at 43. It's like some of my friends are billionaires. Uh, some of them are millionaires. All of them are successful, either physically, mentally, spiritually, financially, or all of the above. And, you know, it turns out so am I. You are. And, uh, you know, between the ages of 20 and 30, you had some really tough years. You, you were out on parole. You went to prison. You were on probation. You got divorced a couple of times. What did you learn in that decade? You know, that, that's like a surveillance time in my life. You know, I was either <coughs> on parole, probation, pretrial release, or in prison my, my entire 20s. I may have spent six months not on one of those things. And, you know, the, the big lesson there was, A, a I need to get my, my life together, right? And, but more importantly, I think now looking back at it at 43 years old, the way that I live life now on social media, Wayne, where everybody's looking at my stuff and everybody like I can't go and yell at somebody and I would never do this anyway. But let me just give an example. I can't just go and yell at a valet and say some racist stuff like maybe or some sexist stuff or or whatever, like maybe a, a, an average Joe can because somebody might know me. They might see me. I have that big enough following where, I, again, I would never do that. But I'm just saying I can't be in that position. You, you look at Michael Irving. Um, you know, he, he got, had a few drinks and hit on a chick. If, if Joe Blow, my neighbor does that, nobody gives two shits if he does that. But Michael Irving, people know who he is. So they, they care. It's like, Hey, we, we're holding you to this other standard. And yeah. and that's the way it is right now. You know, if, if people found out that I, I had was faking one thing or ha didn't have money or my divorce was on the rocks, that it would be news. And so I learned in my twenties really that, I learned to be surveillanced and watched and, and not do anything in the dark that I wouldn't do in the light, right? So don't do nothing yeah. behind closed doors that I wouldn't do for the world. Now, obviously, I don't want the world to see me naked or my finances. But outside of that, I'm not going to lie about being naked or my finances, right? And so that really prepared me. Lesson learned aside, that really prepared me to be used to being surveillance and seen and watched at all times because now, because of the nature of the business I'm in, that's the case, you know. But whatever you did in the past was in the past. Yeah. And you were able to fix it. Yeah. And, and and then turn your life around. And and you know, from 30 to 40, you said wisdom settled in. Yeah, you know, you start to get experience. That's where wisdom comes from. And you know, I think a lot of people never get wise in their life because they never go through and try experiments. You know, I tried selling drugs. It didn't work out for me. I never shot anybody. I never robbed anybody. I never wronged anybody. As far as I know, the I, I didn't sell bad drugs like heroin or crack. I, I sold occasionally Coke, sometimes met mostly marijuana, right? Like the, my bread and butter is mostly pot, which is now legal in 95% of the country. And, and so I say that because, you know, I tried something. It wasn't a bad person like society might've tried to make, make me out to be at the time. I wasn't necessarily a good person. I'm definitely not taking up for myself, but I tried something and I failed, you know, then I, then I tried to run a chain of car washes and, and I liked it, but I, I saw that there was a, a glass ceiling and I got into the banking world. So I tried a lot of things. I left a car wash job in my twenties, uh, yeah, in my 20s, I left a car wash job where I was making fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. And in the early 2000s, that was good money. That's the equivalent of probably one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year right now. Uh, if you if you count for the cost of goods and everything else. Sure. And and so I left that to go to a job that paid me zero commission only 
but a, a big opportunity. Most people, they'd never take that risk. Most people, they, they would be too scared. It's like, what if I don't make money? And I might just be stupid enough to have taken enough risks to where I've done things like that so many times in my life. And not all of them worked out, obviously, the whole prison thing <laughs> and other yeah. stuff. But, but you were confident but, in yourself. You were confident. It gave me wisdom. Yeah, it gave me experience that you can't shake and you can't get from a school book, you know? And now today, you're, you've got a beautiful family surrounded by lots of kids. What, what are the lessons you're learning in your 40s that you can pass on to our listeners today? That's, that's, a good, that's a good question. You know, the thing that the lesson that I'm learning most about is to be a good example, uh, to be a good example to my kids, to be a good example to my friends, to be a good example and, and to my spouse. But let me just stop there for a second. When I say example, you know, my, uh, my parents used to say things like, do as I say, not as I do. And, and I don't want that for my kids. I want my kids to do what I do. You know, I wrote a post on social media recently about, uh, my kids have never not seen me go to the gym every morning. They've never not seen, they've never seen me not have a job. They've never seen like these, these. so when I tell them, Hey, you got to go work out and you got to go and get yourself a job or create a job. They're not going to say, well, that's not what you did. So how are you going to tell me to do that? They're going to be, I watched this dude for 30 years of my life, do this stuff. Right. And right. And so for me, I want to be a good example. Same with my friends. You know, I want to be a good example for them. I'm the type of guy, Wayne, that uh, somebody comes and we go have a couple drinks together and they're like, hey, man, let's just go to a strip clubs. Like, no, nah, bro, that's not for us. I, I want to be the example of when, hey, now we had a few drinks. It's a good night. Wait, it's, it's 1030, bro. Why don't you go home? Not, you're married. Nothing good happens after midnight anyway, bro. So I, I got to be that example. That's what I'm trying to do in my 40s. Let me tell you, it's not easy because there's. There's things that get attention these days, especially in my business, like, you know, sex gets attention, right? Like I'm not a sexy person, but you know, if you're a woman or whatever, or a good looking dude with abs, you can take your shirt off, you know, you can be a victim and get attention. You can be some kind of, you know, social justice insensitivity thing or whatever, right? right. Um, but the hardest way to money, get attention- Make money doing it too. I mean, yep, that's crazy. Yep. Uh, infamy, you could get famous through infamy, right? You could do something wrong, right. you know, school shooting, something like that. Oh, but Christ. you can also get famous through, or you can also get attention, I should say, through excellence, but it's almost impossible. You know, think about uh, Kim Kardashian, smart lady, very wealthy, not a whole lot of talent in all reality. She has, you know, 400 million followers or so on Instagram versus Serena Williams, who has committed to excellence, living her life the whole way, diet, exercise, never been in trouble, no scandals, no sex tapes, no stolen, blah, 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 no, no crazy reality TV show, nowhere near the popularity, nowhere near the money, nowhere, but she's a person that's committed to excellence, right? We don't, we don't get to, we, we don't get the benefit and the attention from trying to be the example, right? Serena's trying to be the example to little girls of, hey, you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to show off and be all sexy and everything else. We can be athletes and come in and dominate and show excellence there. But that doesn't get attention as much as, you know, Kim Kardashian's latest. And I'm not picking on Kim. I'm just using the two as an example, right? Sure. And so when you're trying to be this example... It's hard because your kids don't tell you every day, hey, thank you for the sacrifices you're making and the character that you're developing us to. It's just an unthankful thing that, that has to take place. You know, I don't go and wake them up and go, hey, I'm going to the gym. Don't forget, <laughs> right? It's yeah. just like yeah. they love you guys and I'm out the door doing my thing. Same in the public. When you're a giver behind the scenes, you give to charity and I give to charity behind the scenes and 
do the things that I do behind the scenes to be an example. And I'm not trying to just be an example for the world, but like I said, for a friend, a kid, a wife, a, a client or whatever the case may be. And it doesn't get his attention as much as if I was to come out and say someone bullied me, someone picked on me, something was done wrong to me, or, or I have an announcement to make of some sort about my sexuality or something like that. Yeah. It, it's not the same level of attention and it's harder because this is the way the world works. In reality, it's more fulfilling throughout your life. But in the short term, it's not fulfilling at all. It's actually a daily struggle that you got to go through because we can watch other people seemingly get ahead for a short period of time by using some of the other ways to get attention. Yeah, but it's not all about getting attention. It's what's, what is it at the end of the day? What have you given and what have you gotten from what you've given? And I think, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're setting that example now. You've, you've, you've had a rough road, but you've learned from a lot of lessons. And today you're you've got so many different businesses that you've created. One of the ones I wanted to talk about is this phonesites.com, which sounds totally cool. It's a, it's building a sales funnel lead generation engine using your, your iPhone. I mean, for, for crying out loud, what, uh, tell us about that. How do you do that? How did you come up with that idea? Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of people. So back about 2012, people started creating, it became more popular. It's been around for a while, but people gave it a name and started creating something called a sales funnel online. And <clears throat> basically it is a way for a website to put an offer out there, collect name, email address, phone number, whatever pertinent information that you need, give it to you, the person that owns the website in exchange for maybe a PDF or a video or something of that nature, right? That's like the simple version of it. And Back in 2012, when it first started getting popular, you could go and get certain softwares and they were easy to use, easy to understand, and you could crank out a um, a funnel in probably two, maybe a month, maybe two months, right? If you, if you actually did it right. Well, about 2015, it started getting really more popular and the technology started getting more complicated and it got to a point where it's like, it was just overwhelmed. I was teaching people how to build these things for their mortgage business, real estate business. And, you know, guys and gals that were 50, 60 years old, they're like, it's too much technology. I don't understand what this is or how to drop this in. So I thought, well, okay, well, everybody is going still Warren Buffett adage. Everybody's going one way. Let me go the other and let me just make a simple technology. Uh, and when people ask for extra stuff, let me say no <laughs> and keep it simple. And okay. so that's how phone sites was built. So, you know, if you were to use another big software company like Wix or something like that, you go on your desktop and you got to have all these different things and, and you got to write your own stuff. And that's we great. All that stuff, great yeah. company for us. You just build a website from your phone. We got thousands of templates. We have chat GPT interfaced with our software. So <clears throat> maybe you don't know how to write a website. Maybe you don't know how to write a headline. You can literally type into phone sites, write me a headline for my plumbing company that will make customers want to buy service from us. And it'll Whoa. spit you out four or five headlines. You just do variations of it and you can make, and you can actually just copy. You could write five, six variations on chat GPT and you could just copy and paste five different sales funnels to see which ones would work in front of your audience too. And it's, it's easy. You can, you don't need any school. You don't have to watch a video. You don't need a, a trainer. You don't have to pay extra money to learn this stuff. You don't have to code. And literally you could pick up the phone, log in, and within 30 minutes have a website up and running. <laughs> Is it still popular? Yeah, we have about 13,000 users right now. We've generated over 2 million leads for our clients. So how do you build that website out and the number of users to make it even more valuable? That's what we're working on. 
the, we, the first round that we did with phone sites was consumer facing, which it still is right now. So it's, you know, it goes to the, I say consumer facing, but it goes to the, the people who maybe sell stuff on Etsy or the local plumber or the local real estate agent, something like that, right? Entrepreneurs, but still consumer based. Uh, version two, which we're in the process of developing right now, should be out within the next probably 30 days, is a, it's called smartcard.ai. And the smartcard.ai evolution is into enterprise support. So now we can duplicate that, that offer at an enterprise level. So let's say you run a company that has 1,500 people on your sales staff, right? Now we can integrate this and track it across all metrics for, for all of your people and have them with standard templates. So we've set up this thing that's, that's very next level because ultimately I'd like to sell to a company like uh, Salesforce. They're sure. already in the CRM business. They're already in the lead management business. So adding this little simple piece of technology to their arsenal makes sense because they'll be able to uh, add in the lead generation where the actual leads start through their platform and make it easy for the programmers to use. So it's only going to get easier. It's only a matter of time before, we, oops, before we're either drawing a picture or talking to it and it's just creating it as we're explaining it. It's it's getting that smart uh, art. Our personal company is getting that smart. So no telling what's really out there in the, the billionaire software world, you know? And then the last thing I was going to ask you about today as, a, as the hardcore closer, you have a podcast on how to close any sale. There's four, four components to that. One is prospecting, obviously, follow-up, asking a powerful question, which I, I have lots of questions about what the powerful questions are, and then a call to action. One thing you mentioned was prospecting. You've got to hit a prospect 18 times before they before. Tell me about that. I mean, that, that, that's just mind blowing. How would well, you ask you a question without, without turning them off? You know, that's the trick. That's the trick is, is to not turn them off. And, and so I'll walk through that, but let me ask a question, Wayne. So how many times have you uh, just in the last it's, it's Thursday. So how many times in the last Monday through Thursday, have you seen an ad in your email, social media somewhere and you clicked it to buy it, but it wanted your credit card and it didn't autofill, so you didn't finish filling it out, or I'll get to that later. Day goes by and you forgot about it. How many times does that happened to you on a regular basis? Every day. Every Multiple day. Times. Yeah. You had the intention to buy it, right? Yeah. It's just that yeah. it wasn't convenient to buy at that time because your credit right. card didn't autosave. Or by the way, if you sell stuff online, I'm giving you a lesson. Credit card autosave is huge, by the way, tying in with those deals because if I don't have a wallet in my pocket, I don't remember my credit card numbers. Like I don't know my right. phone number. So. I don't either. So first of all, you have to get in front of them because they may, you may do that too. Oh man, shoot. I meant to buy that. And then something happens. Dang it. Two, three days. Cause we are so filled with distractions right now, but you don't want to show up in front of somebody. It's like, Hey Wayne, buy my stuff 18 times in a row. Hey Wayne, why have you bought yet? Wayne, we're waiting on you. You don't want to do that. Cause it's very pushy, annoying right. and uh, not a friendly way to, I mean, Sales is relationships. That's not a good way. If you're always begging somebody, bothering somebody, it's not a good way to have a relationship with them, right? So, so what you got to do is you got to figure out how to be valuable and how to be a little bit sneaky, okay? So maybe <laughs> on day one, you call them and they're like, oh yeah, I mean to buy this stuff. And the, the situation we're talking about happens. You notice they didn't buy it. So day two, how do you follow up with them? Day two, just maybe you'd like their post on Facebook, right? You ain't calling them again, but you're reminding them, hey, I'm over here. You know, maybe you leave them a comment on Facebook. You're like, and, and it doesn't have to be, hey, buy my stuff. Maybe they make a comment about going to the zoo and you're like, I love giraffes, right? It could be that that simple. You're just being in front of them. 
on day three, maybe you, you like or retweet their last tweet, you know, on day four, maybe you check them out on Instagram, day five, send them an email, right? Day six, maybe you call them back. Hey man, you know, hope everything's well. Like, man, I've been seeing you a lot. I've been meaning to blah, blah. Well, I've got an article that I saw in Forbes that I thought you would love to read. So I'm going to email that over to you tomorrow. Now you got another reason to follow up with them a day later. So you have to show up somehow adding value or adding attention to them without just showing up with your handout all the time. So that's, that's awesome. true prospecting. And, and and that's the trick that most people struggle in sales right now. They're struggling with creative ways to keep showing up in front of people. Without a, without getting them mad, yep. without pissing them off. The the follow-up is the next p- phase of this. Well, um, and that's what I just laid out for you. That's what, I, that's what I thought is it, it, prospecting is really follow-up is part of prospecting. Yep. And then the powerful question. What is a powerful question? Give me an example of a powerful question that you would ask. So the, the roadmap to a sale depends it is all based on questions so many people think you have to talk right you gotta be a good talker to be in sales you gotta be a good listener and the most powerful question in sales that i can think of or that i know of in my experience and i have a lot of experience so this should be saying something is if you're dealing with inbound leads meaning they went to a sales funnel and they put their name email address and phone number in there and now they're a lead in your system to reach out to if you can ask them and then I'm going to break this down for you because you won't believe me when I say it. But if you can just simply ask them, what made you decide to reach out? That is the most powerful question in sales. <clears throat> in that, not, not why did you reach out? Not thanks for reaching out. Why are you here? What made you decide to reach out? Now, there's a reason why we choose those words. Human beings hate making decisions because decisions come with consequences, right? So we avoid making decisions because we avoid consequences. So when you've got somebody on a phone, an email, a text message, and you say, hey, what made you decide to reach out to me? What made you decide to fill out that form? What made you decide to call me? What they're doing is they're admitting that they've made a decision with you. And that's the hardest part of sales is to get a human being to make a decision with you. And we've done that the first second into the phone call because we asked them, hey, what made you decide to reach out today? Now, if you'll shut up and listen to them. When they're telling you, they'll tell you exactly why they're there and how they need to be sold and what it is that they want. And there's two types of people when you ask that powerful question. Person number one tells you what they need, what went wrong and how to sell to them. Person number two is the skeptic. And they may say, well, you know, I'm just reaching out because I saw your ad. And they may leave you hanging. You might have to dig in with some more questions. So before you show up on any call, you should have, you know, 30 seconds of small talk. Hey, where are you from? What do you do for a living? That kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, what made you decide to reach out? Okay, so you're hitting them right from the right from the beginning with that. Then you need five or six questions that you need the information from. When I was a loan officer, I knew I needed social security address, finances, all that stuff. So I had a checklist of about 20 things that I needed from everybody. Questions I need, hey, how much money do you make? What is your social security number? What is your address? You need that as a salesperson, no matter what it is that you sell. And some of those questions need to be, well, it, you know, if if you're looking for this and it's out of your budget, what do you do then? It needs to be things that set them up, those powerful questions that set them up to go ahead and think about maybe the conflict, the objections, the, the things that you're going to have to deal with. Because you're going to have to deal with it anyway. Like some salespeople, they avoid dealing with it and they hide and hope. They, they hide from the prospect and hope that one day they just buy their stuff and they don't have to bother them about it. Right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's, that's not how it works. You asking these questions gets all that up front so that we can get some clarity and decide whether we want to work together and move forward or not. What made you decide to reach out to me today? Yep. I'm going to remember that forever and ever. Thank you. What the last the last point is call to action. 
Um, don't be scared of no, is what you say. And um, tell me a little bit more about your thoughts on that. Well, so when you, when you call some people are scared of hearing the word no, because human beings, don't, we don't like rejection, you know. Right. Uh, but let me let me help you with this. If they tell you no, most salespeople that are average, and these will be the people replaced by AI, honestly, they say, okay, well, thank you for the time. They hang up. They're scared of that conflict, right? But you don't have to have conflict. But what you should have is you should have an innate experience in handling objections. Well, I'm not interested in it. Okay, well, could you mind telling me what it is, that, why you're not interested so I know how to be better next time? Okay, well, blah, 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 blah. Oh, and they might tell you and that's like, oh, well, you must have missed the point because we actually do do exactly what you were saying. Sometimes that happens, right? I have flashcards that we call closer cards. I used to sell them. I don't sell them anymore, but the flashcards have an objection. So what, what you should do is go buy you some index cards from Amazon. If you're listening to this and you want to get better at handling objections and then go get you, you know, pack of 50 index cards from Amazon on one side of each index card, write an objection. I don't have money. I don't have time. Not in my budget. Not ready to buy yet. Got to talk to wife. Need to talk to partner. Write that down on each one of those, those cards. And then on the back, Write down your rebuttal. Need to talk to your wife. Let's get her on the phone right now and see what she says. I need to talk to your wife. What are you going to do if she says no? Are you still going to buy? Right? Like write down your rebuttals for each one of those every day before you get on the phone for, for the next 90 days after you write these down. Every day before you get on the phone, every day before you get to sales, go through and read these like flashcards. Read them from the back. Get somebody in your office to role play with you. But here's what that does. That sounds corny. You're like, oh, flashcards for objections. So, yeah. but here's what happens. That takes the emotion out of the whole situation because you've already prepared yourself with the words and the objections that you're going to get in those cards. So when they hit you for them, you're not like, oh, shoot, Wayne doesn't like me or my product. When 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 Wayne hits me with something, it's like, oh, I know this from the flashcards, Wayne. Well, why don't you get your wife on the phone right now? We can just see if she's into this or not, right? Like I've got that answer already in front of me. And then here's the best part. When you train an assistant, when you train a replacement, when you're training a sales force, you just hand them them cards. Hey, here's how I learn. These are the objections we're going to get. Sometimes they throw you a curveball. You start getting a new objection more often. Write that Write one down and card. add a card to the deck. Yeah. Brilliant. This is great advice. I hope the listeners get a hell of a lot out of this just from the, you know, the few minutes we've spent together. But if they want to find out more from you as you come up with new ideas and new, uh, new topics to talk about, Ryan, how do they... Where should they tune in? Where, where do you, where's your podcast? What's it called? How can people listen to more about you and what you have to say? Yeah. So I've got a lot of stuff. I've been doing this for a long time. So I've got it all the podcasts, the videos, all the social media channel, but you can go to one spot social.com forward slash closer. So one spot social.com slash closer. And that has everywhere. That's my account. That's everywhere. You can find me on the verified accounts that I have all my program software, all that stuff in, in one place. So uh, you can go there and that's, that's easier than me shouting out 20 different places to find whatever you want. Go there, click what you like and let's connect. And do you sell uh, your services? Do you, or do you conduct training seminars? I mean, tell us a little bit more about that before we sign off. Tonight. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm run one of the largest masterminds uh, in existence. We have over 2000 members and typical mastermind in our industry might have a hundred, you know, so we have, right. A uh, very large mastermind. We sell out. Uh, I've got a stadium in Frisco, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. That'll have about 3,000 of our uh, clients and fans and attendees in there. And we got big events every year with speakers like our friend Bobby Castro and uh, my pastor, Keith Kraft. And 
Uh, other famous people got Fat Joe performing. Last year, I had Ed Milet, E.T., Logan Paul, uh, David Goggins. So I throw big oh, events David with Goggins. some of the, the biggest thought leaders. And what's what's wild is I've known David Goggins since 2017. He didn't have an Instagram account. I've known Ed since 2018. He didn't have an Instagram account. So I've been fortunate enough to see some of these guys, not all of them, but see some of these guys before they were the famous. They were always the person they are today. But before they were the famous person, they are today and put them on stages. So uh, this year it's not going to be any difference. June 2nd through 4th in Frisco, Texas. If you want to see the lineup and everything, it's milliondollarmastermind.com. And then the mastermind that I run that's the largest in the country or largest in the world is uh, Apex, which you can go to jointheapex.com if you want to learn about it. But again, all Absolutely. that stuff's on one spot social. Uh, so you can get all that information there. Thank you. And thank you for being a special guest on Blueprint for Wealth. I really appreciate it. Hey, I'm honored that you asked me. You're an important guy. You're very smart. You've got an uh, a, a endless supply of successful, intellectual, smart people. And I'm just glad that you let me come and bring a little different flavor to your audience, man. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's the best flavor. It's, it's, the, it's the savory. It's the savory. Stay tuned for an educational moment. And also stay tuned for your multi-million dollar exit. The book is coming out on May the 2nd. So don't forget, everybody. Subscribe, pre-order it, order it, read it, give me a review on it, and I'll be really happy because it'll make it an Amazon bestseller. Maybe we'll hit the New York Times bestseller list. After. All right. Thanks again. Have a great week. If you're an executive and you need help with your executive comp, let me give you some pointers on what to look for when you're structuring your executive comp program. From an overview perspective, we want to know what the company's goals are are and what the employers, uh, what the employees goals are. And we want to know what tools are available for you to use as an executive or as a company to compensate your executives. What are the key ingredients of an employment agreement that the employee wants and the company wants? And lastly, what are the tax and securities law issues that we have to face? The company's goals, the employer's goals, mainly are to attract and retain the very best talent possible. They want to minimize the risk to the company of not being subject to uh, restrictions, not having the executive subject to restrictions. You want the executive subject, subject to restrictions like non-competes, non-disclosure agreements, and non-interference agreements so that you can protect your core business. And you want to align the incentives for the executive with those that will increase shareholder value. On the executive side, the executive is looking for fair base pay to start. They're looking for strong incentive compensation arrangements such as bonuses and possibly equity in the business to participate in. They want clarity in their, what their roles and obligations are with respect to the company and the do's and don'ts that could get them into trouble if they don't do it the right way. And finally, they want flexibility so that if they're terminated without any good cause or if they leave for good reason, they're protected. The compensation tools are myriad, but base pay really is established by looking at surveys that might be available on in a variety of settings, I've given you a link to one in particular that might be very helpful. The tools also include benefits, healthcare coverage, other perks such as a company car or vacation that's written out in the employment agreement. What incentive comp 
can this individual expect to see? Long-term incentive plans, executive bonus plans, simplified executive retirement plans, non-qualified deferred comp, synthetic equity in the form of stock appreciation rights or phantom stock, real equity like stock and stock options, or profits interests in a partnership setting, and a change in control bonus. All of these are tools that help us ingrain the executive into the business and also keep them for a longer period of time. An employment agreement is going to outline a variety of things in detail, and it's going to include the duties and responsibilities for the individual, things that they're not allowed to do in the form of prohibitive activities or prohibited activities. Compensation. What is their comp? What are their benefits and what are the rewards that they should expect and how clearly is it spelled out? What's the term of the agreement and what are the terms of renewing it? Also, what happens if they leave employment? Are they subject to a non-compete agreement versus just a non-interference or non-solicitation? What's the scope of that and is it enforceable under local law? What's the effect of being terminated without cause and how do you define cause in the employment agreement? Probably one of the most heavily negotiated provisions relates to these provisions that encompass when an individual is compensated if they leave employment or not. If they leave because they're terminated with cause, they should expect a lot less than if they leave because they're terminated without cause. And what are their severance arrangements? How long will the severance continue and what are the conditions to getting the severance, such as signing a general release? In the form of equity, there's various forms, but real equity is stock, restricted stock, stock options in the form of incentive stock options or non-qualified stock options, or a profits interest, which really is only available in a partnership tax setting. Synthetic equity includes phantom stock, which is really a non-qualified deferred compensation plan, and stock appreciation rights are closely uh, aligned with phantom stock in the form of significant synthetic equity issues. When you get this equity grant, the question is, what should you do, and how is it reported for tax purposes? Well, stock is treated as property, so if you receive stock as an executive, you've got to report on your tax return, the fair market value of the stock received. If it's not vested yet, you may be able to make an election to have it taxed now, perhaps at a lower rate, and lock in the holding period for long-term capital gains treatment. If it's deferred comp, you've got to be careful so that you don't run afoul of various rules, including Section 280G, which imposes an excise tax on golden parachute payments, and Section 409A, which also imposes an excise tax if you haven't complied with the really rigorous 409A regulations. The SEC requires disclosure if you're in a public company setting. The CEO, the CFO, and the three other highest compensated executives have a lot of information disclosed about their compensation in proxy statements, Form 10-Ks and registration statements that are filed with the SEC. The disclosure 
can be as basic as summary compensation tables, but then there are subtables within the disclosure documents that give significant detail regarding the compensation arrangements. And of course, if you own stock in a publicly traded company, you're obligated to file forms with the SEC if you're one of these five individuals uh, every time you acquire the stock or sell it or transfer it. So those are some highlights of executive compensation issues that an executive faces and the entrepreneurial company must face when they're hiring their executive team, which is key to the success of any entrepreneurial company in terms of business exit or mergers and acquisitions. If you've got questions on executive comp, give us a call at 571-203-9355 or visit us on the web at zellaw.com. Have a great week. Thank you.